Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. As some of you may know, over the past couple of years, I've done several webinars and video lectures on a variety of topics that also come up on this podcast. There is unfortunately a lack of qualified therapists who specialize in working with cult survivors and their concerned family members. And since I can only see a finite number of clients myself, I wanted to share insights from my 30 plus years of doing this work with as many people as possible. So in pursuit of that goal, I've made all of my recent video lectures available on my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. You can find a link to the page in the show notes of this episode. There you'll find my lecture from the most recent conference of the International Cultic Studies Association, my, quote, Living in Freedom, unquote, series for survivors and their family members, and my recent lecture entitled Why Did I Stay?, which examines the many reasons that people have difficulty leaving high-control groups. We plan on adding more video lectures in the near future, so if you have topics you'd like to hear me cover, please feel free to reach out to us and make suggestions. I wanted to thank our listeners all over the world, and especially over the last few weeks, our listeners in the United Kingdom, in the United States. In Canada, Australia, Germany, Norway, and Denmark. Some very interesting places. And as always, be in touch. Let us know what speaks to you about the show in your part of the world. And so for today, we have Maddie Jo Kausert. She was a pastor's kid and proud purity ring wearer before she moved to New York City and experienced an unexpected worldview and identity implosion. When the Marriage Equality Act passed in 2015, Maddie Jo decided to share how the queer community was one of the catalysts for questioning everything she'd been taught in her first publicly released blog post entitled God and the Gays. This was the start of her popular blog, God, Sex, and Rich People, before terms like deconstruction, purity culture, or exvangelical became hashtags all over the internet. God, Sex, and Rich People exposed the sometimes painful, sometimes hilarious realities of a young female ex-evangelical navigating the diversity of the Big Apple working for the 1% and trying to have good sex without hating herself. Since then, Maddie Jo has developed a pilot for a series based on her blog, which recently premiered at the Omaha Film Festival. You can find out more about Maddie Jo and her work at www.maddiejoecowsert.com. Here's Maddie Jo now. It is so nice to have Maddie Jo Kessert on the show today. There's so much for us to talk about, so many things that you have going on and your book and the whole thing. So I'd love for you to take a moment to introduce yourself and then we will start talking. My name is Maddie Jo Kausert. Uh, I call myself an actor, writer, shameless oversharer. I am based in New York City. I've been out here for about 10 years. And I started my blog, God, Sex, and Rich People, based on my sexcapades and sex exploration and religious deconstruction. Um, a recovering evangelical testimony is what I call it in 2015. And then fast forward to now, I am releasing a book by the same title, God, Sex, and Rich People, A Recovering Evangelical Testimony. And I also developed, wrote, directed, starred in a proof of concept pilot for a TV show by the same title. So that's in the works too. I'm collaborating with a UK-based writer. Her name is Sadia Azmat, and she was actually raised Muslim. So there's like a ton of crossover there. She has a book called Sex Bomb. Anyway, collaborating on that. And I'm a babysitter for billionaires. So that's like my day job. I'm just like constantly in this world I will never be part of. But um, (laughs) that's my spiel. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. It's a good one. 
You know, it's interesting. I mean, I I want to start somewhere that you're probably not used to starting, which is this idea of being a shameless oversharer. There is something really great about the fact that you are talking now, that you're sharing all, all that you need to share and that you feel is on your mind, you know, in your heart. It's also true from all the thousands of former cult members I've worked with, they've had an interesting relationship with sharing, with talking, with having this sense that they've shared too much or um, too soon, that they overwhelm their audience. And in other times, they have felt that they couldn't share, that they wish they could say more, that they were sworn to secrecy, and they're still in that sense of feeling like everything has to remain secret. So finding the balance, knowing what to share and with whom is really quite an amazing thing. I talk to clients and I talk to people in my support group about how just because I ask or someone else asks them a question doesn't mean they have to answer it. And that it's important to also see if you have kind of tested your audience to see how they're going to respond to you. And at the same time, to finally have the door swung open where you can say, this was my experience. I get to talk about it and no one can stop me. And so I'm just wondering how it's been for you just to figure out how to talk about all of this. So I do want to say like in the world of influencing and uh, this like sort of trendy vulnerability Brene Brown did for us, which is great. We love Brene. I do think there's a difference between like transparency and invading privacy. And I think over the years, I've had to learn how to refine that, especially because there are other characters in my story and I need to consider them. Now, do I get to tell my story as I experienced it? Absolutely. But I think the key for me, at least, has been a shift in ownership and being like, let's focus on like how this affected me and how it played out in my life, not sort of slandering and placing blame, even though people did some shit wrong, right? Like, but let's keep the focus on like how I grew. So I think that's something I've had to work on because actually like not everyone, I don't want to say deserves your vulnerability, but like, I do think there's a line to toe because not everybody needs access to all the details, right? But at the same time, like when I'm writing, I I do ask myself, what details do I feel are really important to get to an effective message and to heal? Like I I look back at my early writing in my blog and I'm like, yeah, that was really just for shock factor. I'm not sure that was really necessary, Maddie Jo. But then also I will say, when I started sharing about this stuff, which was, I, I released my first blog post in 2014 or 2015 when marriage equality passed. It was entitled God and the Gays. I had already moved to New York City. So I do feel like I had this geographical privilege that a lot of people who are deconstructing don't have um, because they're still like in the throes of it. Like their community is truly like hinging on them aligning their beliefs with the greater community, the greater population. I didn't have that. I was in New York and doing something totally the opposite of what the rest of my community back home was doing. So there was a safety in sharing. And I was always just kind of known back home as being like a loud mouth anyway, right? Which is just like, I say this all the time. I don't know why like Christians and like the patriarchy is so obsessed with female volume, but like I was, I'm a theater kid, you know? So I was always sort of like loud and out there and too much. And so even in my church circles, I was always kind of the one saying the things that everyone else was thinking. Right. So like, I remember in youth group, they'd be like, Oh, you know, masturbation is a sin, whatever. I'd be like, but what if you're picturing yourself getting fucked in a wedding dress, <laughs> you know? And they're you know, like, we love a workaround. So, and they'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Like, I'm like, well, if it's all about your thoughts, you know? <laughs> like, and um, so I don't know. I think there was, there was something that I just didn't, I didn't have much of a, a fear of opening up, not initially. Later down the road, when some other things happened that had to do with sexual assault and, and whatnot, I did. I was like, oh, I'll never talk about this. But eventually I did. And, you know, it was, it was, it made a huge difference. And I'm so glad that I did because it's been a huge part of my story. And I know it's helped a lot of other people. 
It's so interesting as you're talking also about being louder and stating things and and that there is a reaction to that if you're a woman, if you're a girl. In fact, I'm thinking about that within Judaism, within my tradition, not in most of the parts of Judaism, but in the more orthodox. There are there are kinds of synagogues that I just will not pray in because a woman cannot pray out loud. The their voice is going to distract the men. And so they can't lead the service. They can't sing along. They can't lead a prayer, even if they might be the only one who really knows it. And the other guys are they just showed up. Who knows? But they just they they can't. It's called Koli Shah, the voice of the woman. And um, along with so many strictures and rules put on women to curtail their behavior or their dress and their voice so that they don't bother the men. If there was that much attention shifted to the opposite, uh, where it was, let's teach the boys and men to not be distracted by the woman and to kind of hold themselves together so that a woman doesn't have to stop doing something or dressing in a certain way uh, just so that they, you know, a, a man doesn't get distracted. Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure why it almost always goes in that direction, but it does. And so for you to also have been a theater kid, I have theater kids, my family with my kids, um, where they just want to belt out something and say something and stand in the middle of a room and go, hey, guys, it's very comfortable and it's very much them. And so it makes me think about the times that you just weren't allowed to be naturally you. Yes. And, you know, I was, I was really fortunate because I, although my father was a pastor and he actually pastored at the church where like the infamous Stuart Allen Clark, do you remember when that thing oh, came out? My so goodness. I, I yeah. lived in the parsonage of that church. My dad was the pastor of that church. Stuart came uh, after, but my grandparents were still part of that congregation. And I saw Stuart preach um, one Mother's Day before he went viral. And I walked out of that service. He literally said a woman's skirt should be as long as a sermon, short enough to keep my attention, but long enough to cover all the important parts. He said that in a sermon, I got up and I left. And so anyways, I'm lucky because my, my father's response to that sermon was like, oh, this is Bad. Like he texted me and was like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm in the bathroom checking on my ID I got from Planned Parenthood. Um, <laughs> you could tell the pastor that, you know, and um, I'm just, so my parents have always been about embracing our individuality as kids. So like, you know, I remember as young as kindergarten, I corrected my teacher's English. She like said that she's seen my dad at the grocery store. And I was like, no, you saw him. And I got in big trouble from the teacher. But then later, my parents were like, well, she didn't really do anything wrong. you know." <laughs> she, But they were like, Maddie, like, you know, adults don't like when you correct them. That's embarrassing for them. Don't do that anymore. But they never like, my parents never tried to stifle who I was. They were very much like, go for it. They liked it. But then in church, I was getting a whole different set of rules and expectations of how to behave. And everything you were saying about the men and and it's so ridiculous because it's like people want us to not um minimize and belittle and dehumanize men but look at what you're taught you're taught that you can't even talk without giving them an erection that's insane and that their erection is your fault like and that you like you know they're just i i talk about it like i feel like church and evangelicalism taught me misandry because they they basically taught me that men are predators. Like the second they're aroused, anything goes. They are mindless monsters. Now we won't elect a woman into the White House, but like, please, you know, if one of the presidents get the boner, everything's out the window in terms of his logic. And we're just supposed to, you know, accept that. And it's just crazy. It's like, why and we and that was so normal. That was incredibly tangential, but that was just normalized in my brain. Like, oh yeah, you know, if I just need, I need to switch up my behavior for them. Right, exactly. There's this quote, and if anyone knows who it's from, it was, it's something I found online and it wasn't attributed to anyone. So if anyone listening knows, please let me know. But I love it. 
Uh, and it says, um, women's bodies are not responsible for men's thoughts. And it's just this sort of perfect, like wrapped up in a bow. Mm, yes, exactly, exactly. And that I think also, while, while you just brought up some other things, they were not tangential at all because coming to the irony and the hypocrisy too, when you're talking about purity culture, then you have this person up there at the pulpit talking about how a woman's skirt needs to be short enough to keep his interest. That doesn't sound very pure. So I just wonder, I mean, it's disgusting. It's so disgusting. And I, I love your dad's response to that. That just is very good, very good and supportive. So how was anyone supposed to make sense of the fact that there was so much happening and so much being alluded to and so much focus on sex more so? I mean, I think within purity culture, there's way more focus on sex than there is in sort of general churches or synagogues or anywhere else. And so I wonder how you were able to make sense of that, that this is clearly on this man's mind but the whole culture is supposed to be about purity. Well, I mean, look, when you're trying to rob people of a very basic human behavior and feeling, which is sexual whatever, right? It's going to drive them to madness. At some point, and I realized this in my own journey, at some point, if I didn't just have sex, it was going to become too much of a thing. I was like, I don't, want this to be a thing still on my mind when I'm like in my thirties, I will become, because the reality is it is totally, I always say this, like it is totally okay. If you have made the choice to abstain, I never want to shame someone for a choice that they autonomously are making, right? Not one that they feel has been forced on them, but at some point, and I had this conversation with a priest, with a few priests, actually, I'm like, at some point, you guys are just missing out on like a really basic part of your humanness. And it's going to, I think it's going to drive you to do weird shit. And that's why so probably many of you like have gotten in trouble for predatory behavior because it drives you to a really insane place because you're just trying so hard to suppress it. It's all you can think about. It's kind of like when you tell yourself you're not going to eat carbs or you're going to go on a specific diet, all you do is think about eating. All you do is think about eating bread. You know, it's like where your thoughts are, your actions follow. And absolutely, uh, the obsession with sex, I mean, I definitely saw that. It was like all I ever heard in purity culture was, and just to say for the audience to kind of lay out my brand of Christianity. I was raised Baptist until my dad got in on staff on a not at a non-denominational like cool Hillsong United Vibes church when I was in seventh grade and in the same town where Canacup Camps is. So I don't know if you guys had talked at all on this podcast with like the Pete Newman scandal and all of that. I grew up listening to Pete Newman. Um, for listeners who don't know, he is a guy at Canacup Camps who was um, molesting boys for a really long time. And Canacup just kept covering up and now he's in prison for life. But anyways, those were like my peers, those boys that he was molesting and I grew up watching him. So it was everywhere where I grew up. And it was the cool thing to have a purity ring. Like everybody had a purity ring. And all we heard in youth group was how like our value as women shouldn't be based on our bodies. It shouldn't be based on what we can give sexually. You know, it should be based on your heart, who you are in the Lord. And yet everything, once we had sex, you quickly realize, oh, everything about me and my value was in sex. It just was in not having it by the withholding of it. And I honestly did not know, like when I decided to have sex for the first time, I was like, I'm not just you know, they say like, it's not uh, losing your virginity. It's a sexual debut, which I love. Um, but if I lost anything in that ceremony, if we can call it that, um, it was my identity because my entire identity was being a virgin. I didn't know who I was outside of being a virgin and being a Christian because you couldn't be a Christian and be an unmarried non-virgin. Like you, it just doesn't exist, right? So I was like, well, who am I if I'm not a virgin? And definitely who am I if I'm not a Christian? And that's why I say like my whole identity imploded thanks to like Tender and my Jewish roommate because I was suddenly like, I don't know who I am outside of this. So yeah, it's like the, just circling back to what you were saying, they say it's not about 
sex. They say it's not, you know, it's not your sexual value. I'm like, it's everything about our sexual value. It's just how pure can we be instead of, you know, how much like Cardi B can we be? (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, there are so many terms that you hear people using who are involved in these kinds of purity cultures. Um, There was this interesting dialogue on, where was it? Instagram. So this man writes in, the wife of the new house speaker runs a counseling business advocating the belief that homosexuality is comparable to bestiality and incest, according to operating docs. And so John Fugelsang, who I love, writes, if you compare consensual same-sex relations to bestiality, you are not a champion of Christian values. You're just a person who thinks a little too much about bestiality. (laughs) It's like, okay, clearly that's on your mind. Because why would you even bring that up? Yes. Okay. So we heard the same things too, right? Oh, if we let the gays get married, what are we going to do next? Get to marry our pets? I'm like, that's the leap. Right. And who would even think of that? Yeah. Yeah. And But that is what I heard. I mean, I probably said that. In fact, I know I said that. I know I said that. I reiterated that to people when I was in this world. And it wasn't until sort of like the impetus of my deconstructing was, well, it really started when I went to theater camp in upstate New York when I was 14. That's sort of like the God, sex, and rich people. I mean, read my book, you'll see what it all entails, the rich people aspect of it. But um, rich people have just been this like really funny (laughs) part of my deconstruction, which I I ended up going to this really expensive theater camp where I like raised all the money to go. I like washed cars and Walmart parking lot, you know, to be able to go. But then everybody there that I was, uh, I realized they were like, you know, rich kids from the city who went straight from boarding school to all summer camp. Right. And I was meeting gay kids and I was meeting Jewish kids for the first time. And I was like, the the chapter in my book is all caps, everyone is going to hell. And like the anxiety I felt about like all my friends going to hell. And then I would revisit that in college when I decided to pursue uh, theater professionally in college. And then even more, all my friends were gay. And I was just like, these are like my weirdo compadres and they're all going to go to hell. Like what? And so that was kind of the first sort of like, we're talking about it, getting pulled apart, the, the sweater unraveling. That was the first piece where I was like, I don't think the Christians are right about this. I don't think my pastors are right about this. And I have a part of my book where I ask my lead pastor about this. Like, do we really think they're going to hell? And he tells me this story about like one of his friends who was gay and and then he started coming to church and then just one day wasn't gay anymore. And I I was like, if I was witty enough back then, I would have asked him if this like ungaying magic trick happened in reverse. Like that does that explain the priests, you know? But anyway, uh all that to be said, <laughs> um there was there was just this huge fixation on what people are doing in the bedroom. Like, why do you care? It's just so bizarre why they are so obsessed. And what they would tell us is like, because we would say, you know, I would say, what harm are gay people doing? Like a consenting couple, like, what does it matter? Um, And they would basically say, well, you know, being gay is a sin. So by condoning it with your beliefs and how you interact with them, i.e. being friends with them without trying to convert them or ungay them, you are basically saying with your actions that you're okay with sin keeping the kingdom of God from manifesting on earth. And that is harmful. It is harmful to allow sin to manifest on earth. I'm like, isn't sin already manifesting on earth? Isn't that how you explain Hurricane Katrina, Pastor Joey? You know? (laughs) So... The hypocrisy all around, yes. (laughs) Oh, right. Hurricane Katrina, too. And I've talked on the podcast in the past about how I, with my, my, I remember my rabbi one time saying that nature does not have a conscience. It's not punishing one person, rewarding another person. It is. It exists. It coexists with humans. And sometimes it doesn't coexist well. And it just happens. But it's not because you did something right or you did something wrong. Also, whatever you do in the bedroom, if it's consensual, if it's fine, it isn't then or it shouldn't be a mark on your character um, because there's so much about that. Suddenly it means something about you as a human being. I think the people who damn other people for being naturally them are the ones who have some explaining to do, right? But everything is sort of turned around. So I know, you know, you also talked about 
having something happen to you that was not at all with your consent. And I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about that and how it was handled and the impact that that had on you. Because I know we're we're shifting gears to something heavy. Yeah. So basically, if I can give like bullet points of my time in New York, right? Like I moved in 2013. Um, I move in with a rich dude that grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side. And I am learning all kinds of things from him because he's actually very well read with the New Testament. So we would have like really um, interesting conversations. And he gave me a lot of books about scripture and Yeah. And I, I, this one specific uh, conversation I remember we had, it was after I went on a date with a Jewish guy and I was having like all of this, like equally yoked stress, like, oh, how do I, what do I do about the fact that he's Jewish? I can't date a Jewish guy. I'm a Christian, you know? And um, my roommate, he was like, he, I, I was like, oh, he, he was like, so you, you have a really big problem dating people outside of your faith. And I was like, well, yeah, because my faith is such a big part of me. And so I want someone who it's, it's the same with them. You know, like I couldn't date someone so drastically different from me, like a Mormon. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause Mormons, they believe some crazy shit. And I was like, well, they do, you know what they believe? And I start naming off stuff. And he was like, yeah, no, totally. Um, I get it. Like, because Christians get miracles and everybody else gets stuff they made up. <laughs> it was like, oh damn. And it was the conversations that I would have with him that I was like, oh crap. And then all and then all uh along going on dates, having all of this self-discovery from going on these dates and really getting to a place through like my reading and my research and my self-exploration of like just being like, I don't think Jesus is who I was told he was. So deconstructing my faith and then also sort of having all of these lackluster uh, sexual experiences because what I I thought on the other side of sexual sexual suppression would be sexual empowerment, but instead it was just confusion. It was just sexual confusion because I didn't know how to conduct myself. So then I ended up, which I'm sure you're familiar with, like dissociating for a lot of sex. It's like, I know I was there, but I don't remember anything that happened or because as a lot of people do, and I don't think we talk enough about it, I was using alcohol to numb and black out. And so I wasn't aware because of alcohol or dissociation. And so then once I got to a place where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like I don't want, I I was introduced to some books um, from a friend of mine that basically um, going back to what you said about like punishment and nature and everything, uh, it's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Allen Singer. Um, and he, he basically says, it's this whole, you know, ideology that, you choose your life. Like life doesn't happen to you. Life can happen to you, but you get to choose your response to it. And everything that you think informs how you believe and, or, and uh, sorry, how you act and your choices and your choices make up your life. Right. And it was the first time I was reading something that framed life as something I had a say in. And it wasn't just reward and punishment. Because up until that point, even though I deconstructed a lot of the stuff and I didn't like consciously believe in it, I was for sure still abiding by it subconsciously. Like, oh, anytime I don't book something, it's because God hates me because I'm having sex. I don't have a boyfriend because God hates me because I'm having sex. Like everything was reward and punishment. And I was constantly a victim. This stuff was saying like, no, MJ, you can change your life. And here's how you can do it. So then I just launched into like all this bibliotherapy, I call it. And I, you know, I made the vision board. I started saying the affirmations and my life genuinely did get so much better. And I was in this like great place where I felt like I had gotten over this huge, like three-year fog, right? Like I was finally operating within some clarity. Part of that clarity was figuring out my sexual ethic and how, what I, what I really wanted from sex instead of just like showing up for it and hoping the best, Right. And so then I realized, oh, I should probably be like aware for it and <laughs> not like drinking and whatever. And what I was finding is that it was wildly disappointing and men were awful. Like my no wasn't listened to. I, you know, I have a, I have a um, chapter in my book called No More Obligatory Blowjobs. And it talks about how I felt like often I was in these situations where I was consenting by exhaustion because I would just push and push and push. And then finally I'd like blow them off just to get them to leave me alone so I could go to sleep. 
And I was so afraid to release that blog post because I did release that. And then, I I mean, I was so afraid because I was like, oh my gosh, everyone's just going to think I'm like a horrible slut to say something like that, you know? And like, why couldn't I be stronger and whatever? And in fact, so many women were like, me too. We have all been there. And I'm like, really? You know? Um, And so that was happening. And so I was really starting to like take notes and be like, okay, how can I make this better? How can I speak up for myself? How can I, you know, vet these guys better? And then I like, you know, had this really wonderful relationship with this guy that went really, really well, fell in love for the first time since my college sweetheart and learned a lot through that. And then I landed back in New York City because uh, I was away. Anyway, back in New York City, I was away for some time on a performance contract. And then Donald Trump was elected. And I'm back in New York and I'm actually like very excited to start dating because I feel like I have these like, this this how I'm going to do it. This how I'm going to like suss out the guys. This how I'm going to have these sexual experiences. And I meet this guy, yeah, two days after uh, Trump's election and we go on our second or third date and I really like him. I'm like really enjoying my time with him. Uh, he asks me if I want to go back to his apartment. I initially say no. And I say, because I know what that is, tales and what expectation will be there. And I'm not ready to like do that. Um, I'm not going to fulfill that expectation. And he was of course like, no, 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 of course not. Like, I'm just really enjoying you. And I'm like, I'm enjoying you too. I would love to go back with you, but like, please, I'm being clear, you know? And he was like, yeah, of course, of course we go back. I take like one sip of whiskey. I won't go into the details, but essentially I was date raped and I woke up the next morning and like, I really tried, like I, I tried to sleep on the couch. I told him I didn't want to go into his bedroom. Like he just, it, my no was not heard. And so then the next morning, um, it was one of those like feelings of, I mean, looking back, I just was like, can I even call that rape? Because like I was drinking, I did like him. I was at his apartment you know, and now I can look at that and be like, those are all such bullshit. It goes back to like, you know, not speaking because you're going to distract the men. It's like, no, when I get too drunk, I want to eat Taco Bell and go to sleep. I don't want to sexually assault someone. Whenever I go to my apartment, lots of things happen in my apartment that don't involve rape. Like why, you know, why do these settings just make it okay? And then I was even more afraid because of my platform with my blog. I was so afraid to tell everyone because I just knew, especially all my family and friends back home, they'd be like, well, what did you expect? You talk about sex on the internet, Maddie. I just did not know what to do except I knew that I had one place I could turn to that I had loyally turned to, or they had rather loyally helped me over the years, um, which was Planned Parenthood. So I, I called Planned Parenthood and I said, like, I told them what happened and that I need to be tested. And they said, okay, we're going to put you in touch with our a counselor. So then they put me in touch with the counselor and she let me know that actually they can't test you right away for STIs. You have to wait like two to three weeks for anything to even show up, but they can partner me with a um, social worker and a doctor at the ER, at this specific ER. um, If And I need to get there in the next 48 hours. That was really important because they're going to give me preventative medicine. They're going to like do all of these things, but they need to happen quickly. And I was like, oh, is, is it free? Because the whole reason I... I went to Planned Parenthood for so many years before. Well, it was a few reasons, but a big one was insurance. I was like, I could, I was on Medicaid. I'm an actor. Like I didn't make a lot of money and I couldn't find a gynecologist to take my insurance. In fact, until this last year, I did not have like a legit gynecologist. I just always went to Planned Parenthood because I know they're going to take my insurance. No questions asked. And I needed, I needed a lot of questions answered when I first moved to New York. And I was like, I know a place that will probably tell me because they've been vilified. So I'm sure that means they're great. So then, yeah, they set me up with this social worker. Um, I went I went to the ER. Um, they walked me through what my, my options. They wrote down copious notes of the event in case I ever wanted to press charges. I told them I was not going to press charges. He was rich and political. And I was like, I don't want to relive. I don't want to go into a courtroom and get asked all the questions I'm already asking myself like how I could have prevented this from happening. And uh, they they offered me a rape kit. I said no, because I just felt so violated already. Like I just didn't want anything touching me down there for a long time. They gave me a lot of medication. I was super sick because it was like, it just, it, it was heavy on my body. Um, and then they set me up with like HIV testing, like up to six months after the incident. Um, and they scheduled my appointments like right there. 
Then on top of that, they offered me a sexual trauma therapist free of charge. And I just kept saying to them, this is free. Cause I was so afraid. Like, well, am I going to get like a bill for all of this? You know? And they were like, it's free. It's covered. You're good. And I was like, And I still, it took me a while to go see that sexual trauma therapist because at that time, therapy wasn't trendy yet. Now, if you're a millennial and you can get therapy, you're probably like getting therapy. But like at the time, it was only for people who had like real problems. And I didn't want to make this thing that happened to me against my will a problem. I was like, this will not dictate my life. I am still going to carry on and whatever. But then about four months later, four or five months later, I had a total breakdown and I just, I couldn't get out of bed. And I called my brother and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And he knew about it because I told him about it right away, but I didn't tell anybody else in my family. And he encouraged me to contact the uh, therapist. And then I ended up getting paired with a male therapist, which is a whole other story, but he is still my therapist to this day. And that man, I mean, truly, if it were not, I mean, he's like in the acknowledgements of my book. Like he is the reason I got as far as I did with the purity culture stuff, because I thought that I had like worked through it. And then I started working with him and I was like, oh, wow, we got a long way to go. (laughs) All from Planned Parenthood. And people want to yell because they give abortions. It it truly is one of the things I'm the most passionate about. And I like have literally talked to nuns about this because I still have friends who are really uh, religious and like I'll go to convents and stuff with them. <laughs> I'm like, let me tell you my story, ladies. Right. I. It's interesting. I actually, I know a man who is a doctor affiliated with Planned Parenthood and he uh, went to get a vasectomy And he wrote about it after um, saying, here, I was able to walk into the office. No one had picket signs. No one was screaming at me saying I'm a murderer. I didn't need an escort. I didn't have a doctor who said, are you sure you want to do this? And was trying to talk me out of it and telling me that it wasn't in line with what God wanted. None of that happened to me, but it happens all the time to women. And it's the same thing, just saying, I don't want to have children or I don't want to have this child. And it is a very interesting thing. I'm really glad that he, you know, he noticed the difference of just how easy it was for him to make a decision for his own body and his own future. Yeah. I mean, I called my dad. I left Planned Parenthood a few times. I had to get like annual colposcopies for a while because I tested positive for HPV, which is something I think I was so ashamed of when I tested positive for HPV. But it happened after my incident. So pretty sure I got it from him. And so that sucked because then I was like, now I have to deal with this thing that could develop into cervical cancer from someone I didn't even want to have sex with. And I'm leaving... Planned Parenthood after my colposcopy, which is not a fun procedure. And I walk outside in New York still to picketers. And I'm like, I am, you have no idea what women are going through in there. And I called my dad because I thought it was important that my dad knows this stuff happens, you know? And I I told him this was after I'd already come out to my family about my assault and everything. And I said, you know, I got this thing from that situation and HPV is very normal. I want to normalize it. Anybody like whatever you can breathe. You've had sex with people. You probably have HPV as a woman. It sucks, but it's real. And as long as it's monitored, it's totally fine. But yeah, I just wanted to like tell my dad that because I was like, I am going through something really difficult in there. That is something I didn't choose. And I'm walking out to people calling me a baby murderer. And yeah, and I I had words with the nuns about that too. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay, good. I'm glad you had some words with the nuns. Um, (laughs) Yes. You know, I mean, also it's very heavy when we think about, I've had a chance to work with some of the young women who were in uh, La Luz del Mundo um, with their pastor who's now in jail, luckily, although it should be for way longer than it is. And they were his consorts. They were raped by him at a very young age. And then his limo driver would bring them to a clinic to be checked or to get abortions. And they would be yelled at by the people working there and called names and told what's wrong with you. No one asked questions. Why these 13, 14, 15, 16? 
girl, girls are coming back over and over again, being dropped off by a limousine um, because the pastor had every, all the money and, you know, the followers had none. And I think, you know, the fact that you were able to have words with the nuns is a really good thing because I think about all the women and girls who haven't been able to do that. They, they've just needed to deal with being violated and then being shamed and nothing happens to the man who does this to them over and over and over again. And so just being empowered to be able to say what's what has happened to you and what's wrong, I think it's also a really good reminder for listeners in general, when you're listening to a story that if you're all too easily going to focus on the behavior of the victim and questioning the victim, you want to keep yourself in check. It happens when people just say, I got involved in a cult. The listener often doesn't think, God, who runs these groups and why would they do this to people? But they think, why would you get involved in that? Yeah. Why are you such an idiot? <laughs> right. How can yeah. you see what it was? But the focus is always on the wrong person. Yeah. I just don't understand. It's just, it's like low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I said to, to be clear, the people picketing weren't nuns. Um, That was a separate situation, but the nuns were telling me how they would basically like find these women coming out of Planned Parenthood and they would say, you know, you don't have to do this, do you know that there are other options? And this convent actually did help women raise these kids. They, the nuns were the the daycare, the teachers, that they gave these women a place to live, helped them develop a resume, get jobs. And I was like, that's amazing because you're you guys are giving what a lot of women don't feel like they have, which is support. And that's awesome that you're doing that. But where I draw the line is one of the nuns said like, yeah, we just let them know that like they're forgiven. Like there's this, like, because she was talking about how uh, one of the women had had an abortion, but then didn't have an abortion for the, the second time she got pregnant. And, you know, the shame that they experience and, and we just let them know, you know, you are you are forgiven. Like that is why that sin is done. Like God doesn't even think about it. You don't have to think about it. And I said, look, I'm not arguing that anyone comes out of an abortion completely unscathed. I get it, right? I'm not trying to say that you just do it and then like go to McDonald's and go on with your life like nothing happened. But I do think that this language you're using makes it worse because you're calling her decision sin. Therefore, giving and telling her it is something to be forgiven for. So you're actually making her probably feel worse than she probably felt before that exact language was used. Calling something a sin and acting as if it needs forgiveness, that is going to put so much um, greater heaviness, like just make it a bigger deal than it is. You know, like masturbation, calling it a sin. It's not really that big of a deal, but if you call it a sin and say it needs to be forgiven, that messes with people's psyches, you know? Right. I mean, that is a nuanced distinction, but I'm really glad that you brought it up because, yeah, there are a lot of people who feel that they're being taken care of and really heard and really understood by very well-meaning people. But there is this inherent message woven in that still you've done something wrong and that you need absolution somehow, which is not at all right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's a big reason why you, people ask me, do I still consider myself a Christian? And for a long time, I, I didn't talk about it. Like, I think I just released a blog about it in 2021, 2022. It's called Hell Yes, Oh Fuck. And then the follow-up is Hell No, Part 1 and 2. And it's about when I decided I was no longer a Christian. And I get that there are a lot of people that come out of purity culture who are like, you know what? We just want to make the church better. We want to like see improvements. We need to get rid of this and this and this and this. And I think that's great. But for me, I can't consider myself a Christian because baseline, I just don't buy into the theology. I don't buy into the theology of original sin. I don't think that my baby nieces and nephews were born bad and that they need God to save them. I don't believe that. I don't believe, I believe in a message of like grace and service and sacrifice, but not to the extent of like a boundaryless life, which is what ends up happening to a lot of Christian women, right? Like just give of yourself constantly and blah, 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 blah. And also at the very core or the very like, uh, I would say conception of organized Christianity is the Catholic church, right? And it was formed for political power. 
I don't think you're ever going to get away from that. I mean, call me a pessimist, but you can do all the advocacy and all the work in the world. It was born a kind of corrupt system. Like, I don't know that you're ever going to get away from that. And so anyway, I, yeah, I just, the whole, going back to what you're saying, the whole language around like sin, original sin, needing forgiveness, needing redemption from the Lord, or like even I see that, I see even when my dad talks sometimes, my dad is an incredible, exceptional human being. And he'll still be like, I don't know, there's that that scripture that's like, I am, I am but a dirty rags or something like that without Christ. I'm nothing without Christ. I'm nothing without Christ. As if Christ is the only good thing about him. And on his own, he couldn't come around to being like a really great person, you know, because I that was a big thing too when I was walking away from my faith is I was like, but what will my moral compass be? Because that's what we think too. Without Christ, we're just going to be like unhinged, you know, and we can't be good and all of that. And I just see that. And I'm like, there are so many really wonderful people who basically have horrible self-esteem because of this original sin idea. So interesting. So I, there's someone I know who, who was uh, a pastor for a very long time, just couldn't reconcile the beliefs and also how much there was a shift in belief just based on the, the denomination. So either it is or it isn't, right? Either God said it or God didn't, or Jesus said it or Jesus didn't. And I remember he started some talk with, he did a PowerPoint during the age of PowerPoint. And, uh, Said, and it said it had a picture of Jesus, and then it just had this, like in quotation marks underneath. Yeah, I never said that, and that that was so good. You know, like that just set the tone for the whole. Like, yeah, no, uh, uh-uh. uh, we're good with that. Just I don't know who made that up and attributed it to me, but I'm kind of a cool guy who's just a teacher and wants people to love each other. And I'm gonna go walk on water. You have a good day. You know, like it just felt very. I don't know. I feel like he's like some fellow Jewish guy I would get along with, right? <laughs> like we could hang out, but not that whole the the fire and brimstone, the hellfire, basically the I'm nothing without, which is very interesting. And it's hard to overcome that. And even with your dad being so forward thinking in so many ways, there's still some things that just get under your skin. Well, yeah, because what I always say is that at the root of every lie that the evangelical church espouses is a motivation of social control. And the best way to control a population is to sever them from themselves. Because if they don't know how to think or feel for themselves, they will always outsource that to someone else. So then that's where you get the language of like the spirit versus the flesh, right? So like the spirit is good. The spirit is of the Lord. The flesh, that's you. That's you as a human. Everything about you as a human, bad. Replace everything about the flesh with the spirit, right? And they're always at war with each other. And then that whole like, I am nothing without Christ. You have no sense of self outside of this thing that is within you because of the Holy Spirit, but not really because you're a piece of shit without it, you know, like, and it's this, I mean, in, I mean, how much they sever us from our bodies. They teach us just like not to uh, respond to cues of safety and all of that. And so that's how they, that is how they gain so much control because they basically teach you that you as yourself before Jesus came into the picture is bad. You are bad, 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 bad. The The intro of my book is basically like, you're so good. I just need you to remember that from the start. Like, you are so good. You are not bad. And because that's all I heard is you're just bad, 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 bad. You're nothing without Christ, you know? And it was just this way to rob us of our sense of self on like a, you know, a mental, emotional level. And then, I mean, everything else with purity culture, with the physical level, right? Right. So I know that we're coming to the end of our time talking, and I hope we get to talk again because there's so much to talk about. Uh, I want you to talk just a few moments if you can. You know, you've already touched on your the healing process and having a therapist. And just if you can say and offer some ideas for people listening about what it was that was helpful during this therapeutic process to help you untangle things or to feel like you were okay the way you were. I mean, I'm wondering what messages you you got. Yeah, so I got into sexual trauma therapy in like 2017. And first of all, like, and I'm sure you know this, um, 
get a good therapist, which is hard, right? I got super lucky. I got gifted one from the Lord, from God, from the universe for free. He's not free anymore. I pay for him now, but at the time, but he was just a really good therapist. Um, He knew how to read my physical cues. He could really just like, like, so uh, for example, one day I came in and I went on this whole tangent about how one of my auditions went wrong because, and I like explained the anatomy of my vocal cords and like my soft palate and did it. And I didn't hit the note because of all of this anatomical stuff. And then the conversation led to, I have a hard time asking for what I want in bed. And it's a kind of a two-part uh, realization. But one of the things uh, he pointed out is like, I am very, I'm, very comfortable talking about like my vocal cords, my throat, my soft palate. How's my vagina any different? I was like, good point. We put so much, because I would say that telling a guy what I want is embarrassing. And he's like, oh, interesting. Like, so talking about that part of your body is embarrassing, but like talking about your elbow isn't. And, you know, he didn't say it in that tone, but I was like, oh, good point, you know? And then another thing that he brought up is that um, I would sort of hesitate to say certain things. And he was like, you're hesitating. Why are you hesitating? And I'd be like, because it was something like mean about men. And I'd be like, I just don't want to hurt your feelings. And he'd be like, oh, you're afraid you're going to hurt my feelings? And then we talked about how often I dismiss my own feelings to caretake men's feelings. And we got into, um, you know, we unpacked more in other sessions about just how much of a pedestal men are put on. They're like sort of framed as predators in the way that we talk about them in the evangelical church, but they're also put on a pedestal. Like in my mind, to be chosen by a man was tantamount with being loved by God. So I put them on such a pedestal. So I would do anything to for their approval at the expense of my own self-respect, at the expense of my own pleasure. My, my um, yes to them was a no to myself. It was things like that, that I really got down to the nitty gritty about. And then while I was doing that, it took me a while, but I started dating again. And I felt safer to date with these like new discoveries. And then I would like go on a date with a guy and then I would come back and talk to um, my therapist and I'd be like, this is what I like. This is what I didn't like. Oh, why did you like this? What did you enjoy about this? What did you, you know? And we would sort of like review <laughs> everything together. And that helped me create my sexual ethic. And it really helped me figure out who I wanted to be myself and in relationship and what I truly desired and what my values were. And yeah. And so that was just super helpful because I felt like before I was just sort of spaghetti slinging, hoping something would stick, doing the typical thing that I think a lot of women do, which is like easy to do, which is just to be like, men suck, you know? And it's like, well, Yes, some of them do. There, There is a culture at play that really allows for them to get away with anything and it all be dismissed. But there are lots of really wonderful men. And how do I... How do I start to believe things in myself in order to attract the guys that also believe those things? So for example, I also realized that I was like Madonna whoring myself. Like I would only sleep with guys who I thought I had no future with because if a guy actually liked me, I was afraid if I slept with him, he wouldn't like me anymore. Things like that. And I just wasn't fully comfortable opening up my myself sexually to a dude where there was like actual potential. I was also afraid if I like slept with a guy too soon, that was the reason he became uninterested. And what I realized is that um, I had to undo a lot of that own, that thinking for myself in order to attract a guy that doesn't think that way. So it was, it was stuff like that. That was like, I, I was, I call it my fucking field study. Um, but it was important and it was nice to have someone alongside, not actually there alongside, but someone sort of like decompress and have like professional help with. And I mean, still, I'm in a, I'm in a, you know, long-term partnership now. And Patrick is my therapist's name. I mean, basically every week it's like helping me through my relationship stuff with things that still pop up. That's fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad. So glad you have that. And it's nice and consistent and you can check in and get feedback. It's really lovely. It's really, really important. So just as we're finishing up, let people know where they can find the myriad things that you're doing and that you have out there. Go for it. 
Yes. Um, so you can find me mostly on Instagram. I do have some TikToks, but that platform terrifies me. So um, if you are on the TikToks, I have videos over there you can go through, but I don't post there very often. It's um, My name is M-A-T-T-I-E-J-O. So it's two T's and an I-E for Maddie. Maddie Joe, J-O, no E. Um, so on TikTok, it's Maddie Joe Cow Squirt. The word squirt. Um, on Instagram, it's Maddie Joe Cowsert, C O W S E R T. And then for my blog, so my book is set to come out in uh, winter, spring 2024, but that could change. So, because of something I spell out in my <laughs> blog post that I just released. So, um, subscribe to the blog, maddiejoecowsert.com backslash God, sex, and rich people, and the word and not an ampersand um, to get all the updates uh, because I'm going to be keeping people in the loop with the book. Um, but in the meantime, while the book is not out yet, you can read an arsenal of, if I do say so myself, amazing writing on my blog. Um, there's a lot there. And if you, uh, and when you subscribe to the blog, you'll get sort of like your, your freebie, which will get you, give you like a starter pack for reading. And if you DM me and you're like, Hey, I have this question. I'll be like, I wrote a blog about this and I can send it to you. That's fantastic. Okay. So everyone needs to check out her her fantastic writing uh, <laughs> everywhere. And I'm sure I always say like, if you don't like your writing, who will? So I'm sort of <laughs> abashed good. about that. I'm like, whatever, it's great. <laughs> That's good. No, but I like coming out of the experience that you've had, just that you have things that you can feel really confident about. And it's so nice to hear. So it was wonderful to talk to you and uh, let's do it again whenever you want. Yes, this was so, so great. I loved it. I love what you're doing. I uh, started your episode with You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt, Girls. So uh, <laughs> I love what you're doing over here. So thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. One more thing before you go. Thank you. Thank you to Maddie Joe. It is really good to hear from someone who is so open, so willing to talk, and also so willing to say things in a way that would have been prohibited in the past. Not everyone actually needs to do that when they get out of a restricted environment. They find other ways to express themselves. But there's some people who really were kept from expressing themselves verbally, who enjoy the freedom to be able to say what's on their mind and say it the way they want to say it, because they can. And because it's not any kind of judgment about someone's character or if God loves them or not, if that is any uh, anything that they're questioning or anyone else is questioning. Being able to use the words that you want to use is a very empowered way to be. And I really like that Maddie Jo uses language that is strong, that shows that she is an independent person and fearless to a certain degree. One of the things that is so important, I think, too, when Maddie Jo is talking about all that she went through is that she mentioned something about Planned Parenthood. Now, there are some people out there listening, I'm sure, who are going to have a feeling about Planned Parenthood, thinking that it's just a place where people go for abortions. This is not an ad for Planned Parenthood. I just know a lot of people who have benefited worldwide from being able to go to a place that actually offers education and medicine and support and some work if you've been raped, traumatized. There is this lovely sensibility and sensitivity that exists in places like that. And they're never one-note sambas, so to speak. It's not just a place for abortions. But that is a service that is provided. And for many people, it is life-saving. One of the things that I want to be able to talk about in general, though, is the fact that there are resources out there like Planned Parenthood that people within cultic systems know nothing about. 
They know nothing about these resources. They sometimes know nothing about the fact that there are these people who work for a place called Child Protective Services. Sometimes it's called something slightly different in your area, but basically some funded organization that is a place where people can call if they feel that there is child abuse or child neglect, if a child is being hurt, if a child is being molested, if a child is being starved, if a child is being put in harm's way, there are people you can call. And there are people also who I worked with who are from compounds who didn't really even know that you could call the police if something happened to you that was dangerous or if someone hurt you or if someone was barring you from being able to get medical care that you needed, or in some cases, barring you from being able to have access to food as a punishment. These are things that police will often address, that Child Protective Services will often address. Sometimes they handle these moments well, sometimes not as well, but still, it is important for people to know that there are resources. And that they don't just do something that the group would not approve of, like Planned Parenthood being termed a place that is, again, just for abortions. When people leave environments, it could even be a very restrictive family system, they're often very surprised to know there are people out there who care about what happened to them and who they could have called had they known about them. When people reach out for help, they're often petrified to do so because they feel that they are betraying the group. They're betraying their family. They're betraying their loved ones, their partner. And so there is an emotional and spiritual prohibition put on reaching out and taking advantage of your resources. But if you feel that you have been made to feel afraid of contacting a particular resource once you've been in an organization, please do your own research to find out if the bias through which you have been taught about a particular resource makes the information you have really inaccurate. Find out who your resources are. Find out who you can refer people to who you're concerned about or you can refer yourself to. Now, being able to have access to the internet, also something that people coming out of cults have been made to feel fearful about accessing, in part because then they might find out that there are people out there to help them and protect them from the situations they are in and have been in, but that people really will feel so empowered and protected knowing that there are people out there whose job it is, whose training it is to help, to intervene, to protect. And so if you find that you're feeling very much alone after leaving a situation like this and you think there's nobody to talk to, there is. There are organizations, people who really do care. There are counseling centers. There is an organization that I help found, which is called Stronger After, where people can get five free meetings. One's coming out of a system of control. It's not counseling per se, but it's a place to start to find out if the symptoms that you're having are quote-unquote normal and expected and Mm, to be able to start talking about what you've been through. If you need resources too that are cult-related, please get in touch with the International Cultic Studies Association and check out their website and find out about their resources and referrals. People also have been sometimes given this impression that they have to go it alone. They have to take care of themselves. Sometimes they're worried that people won't help. Sometimes they're worried people won't believe the stories they tell about what they've just been in. But sometimes that will happen, that a therapist might not believe you if they don't know about cults or about systems of control. But eventually, if you look up online mm, something like cult recovery, you will find people who will understand. Please do not contact the Cult Awareness Network, though. 
that was a wonderful organization years ago when it started that I had been involved in also that was taken over by Scientology. It's a long, drawn-out, and kind of ugly story of something that they did, but they purchased the name. So if you call the Cult Awareness Network, you will be talking to a Scientologist, which they won't tell you. So that's why I'm telling you. So you still need to be a wise consumer of your resources. But again, don't ever feel like you're alone and you have to go it alone. One of the definitions of wisdom is knowing who is part of your team, knowing who your resources are and what your resources are, and leaning on them when needed. We are pack animals. We rely on community. We rely on each other. So lean on people who are out there to help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually sometimes a symbol of strength that you're mustering up the courage to reach out for help. And so I support you in doing so, in finding people who you can link arms with along your journey of healing. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.